0: This sermon is from Grace Fellowship Church in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. To access other sermons or to learn more about us, please visit our website at graceedmonton.ca. We've now, for several weeks, been looking at Paul's teaching, the Corinthians, looking at issues related to idols, food offered to idols, the heart attitudes that the Corinthians are to have concerning idolatry and food offers to, offered to idols and christian freedom and uh, having completed that now steve completed that last week in first corinthians chapter 11 in verse 1 beginning in verse 2 1 corinthians eleven 2 we're looking at a completely new topic so it's a totally new topic And Paul, what he's doing now is he's shifting gears. He's going from Christian freedom and idolatry now to issues related to worship. And so if you look at chapters 12, 13, and 14, he gets into uh, issues of, uh, in this case, headship within the church and family, the Lord's Supper, spiritual gifts, love in the spiritual gifts, orderly worship, And then in 15, he's going to get into the resurrection and shift gears again. So this is the beginning of Paul's teaching, Paul's writing on worship. And as we saw uh, from PJ, who read the text, thank you, brother. We're looking today at chapter 11, verses 2 to 16. And what Paul is going to do in this passage, these 15 verses, 16 verses, is he is going to deal with issues of headship, Christian headship, I'm not sure if that's a peculiar word to you, but headship and head coverings, both in the local church, in the worship of the local church, and in the life of the family. And I don't know what you guys, do you find that exciting, that idea of looking at headship and head coverings? I don't know. Uh, As you might expect, this is a text that has perplexed many people, many scholars who have looked at the Bible, and it's perhaps a passage, if you've read it, I know that's why I would be excited to hear a text like this. It's a passage that has probably perplexed many of you as you've read and studied the Bible. What do I do with head coverings? Do I ask my wife to wear a head covering next Sunday when we go to church? Do I make sure that I don't wear my toque at church? Not to pick on you, brother, but what do we do... I said it was going to be a bit more interactive. What do we do with head coverings? And one commentator writes this. He says, at least if if you've had some difficulty with this passage, you're at least in good company. One commentator says this is probably one of the most difficult passages in 1 Corinthians. uh, Definitely in 1 Corinthians 11. And uh, this commentator said that uh, there are as many interpretations of this passage as there are interpreters. The reality is it's just a difficult section of 1 Corinthians, and it's something that's far removed, honestly, from our cultural context, our practice, and our understanding. But uh, as I prepared, when I saw Steve and I have a little schedule that we lay out as we're looking at texts that who's gonna preach on what, and when I saw that I got to preach on 1 Corinthians eleven two 2 to 16, I was overjoyed. And it's not because I love, or I do love, uh, biblical background studies, cultural context, historical context. It's not because I'm a a sadist. It's not because uh, I want to torture anyone with a topic that seems to be almost irrelevant to our life today. No, I was excited because I love to show Christians, and even those who aren't Christians, but especially Christians, that even these types of difficult, obscure, Perplexing passages. Not only are they interesting and and exciting to study, at least I find it so, but they're actually relevant to our lives today and they hold real bearing. There's real application. They're thoroughly instructive for our lives as we seek to do the will of God in the world, because that's what we're trying to do, right? Is to read the Word of God and to conform ourselves to that Word. And there's lots here for us to read, understand, and conform to. So today we're going to study this difficult passage. And it's although it's completely foreign to us, I think that what we'll find if we study these verses carefully, just like any other text in the Bible, if we study these verses carefully, if we rightly divide the Word of God in 1 Corinthians eleven, two to 16 not only are we going to come... Uh, to the end of it with a greater understanding, a real, true understanding of what Paul is writing. But we're, we're going to see this. We're going to see that Paul addresses these worship customs that he addresses in doing so. That's what I'm trying to say. He, in, I'm going to try that over again. Paul addresses, as he addresses the worship customs of his day, he unveils a timeless principle. There we go that transcends cultures, that transcends languages, that transcends geographical barriers. And what we're going to see is here, Paul shows us how we are to order our churches, how we are to order our families in our relationships, not according to our own whim and will, but according to God's design at creation, God's order of creation. So here we learn about something that has come to be known as Christian headship. Like I said, what is that idea of Christian headship? And what it is is this. We're going to learn about God's divine structure for authority, for leadership, and for responsibility in the world. And it's here that God fully and finally deals with the battle of the sexes. If people would only read 1 Corinthians 11, maybe Ephesians 5, and some of these other texts, they would understand God's intended design for men and women. And God will show us how we can live in harmony with each other. Not only live in harmony, but actually thrive as men and women of God. And so I'm excited for this text because it teaches us how to thrive as a church. And it'll teach you how to thrive as a family and husbands. It'll teach you how to thrive as a husband and as a wife. And so uh, we're going to get right into the text. I'll contain my excitement. And we'll look where Paul begins in verse 2. Paul says in 1 Corinthians eleven two, 2, he says, Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. So Paul begins Uh, this section verse 2 with a commendation for the corinthians perhaps it was because something they wrote we don't really know that's one of the challenging things that makes uh, or one of the areas of this text that makes it challenging to understand is we don't know the context but maybe it was the corinthians that wrote to them you'll remember in chapter 7 8 9 when paul saying now concerning now concerning he's dealing with issues that they have written to him about and now we don't know if it's something that they have written or maybe it's a report maybe from Chloe's household if you remember Chloe all the way from chapter one but what we do know is this Paul is genuinely pleased with the church's practice in in at least one area with their efforts to remember him and as he says to follow the traditions that he had taught them probably traditions that he had received as well and this is in stark contrast I I like pointing these things out in verse 2, he says, now I commend you. This is in stark contrast to verse 17, when he deals with the Lord's Supper, where he says, now I do not commend you. And so this is something sincere. What Paul is doing is he's, he's, with a true pastor's heart, he is rejoicing in the Corinthians' honest efforts to follow his instructions. But, there's a word, but. The very next phrase, the next verse, is the word, but. But Paul is going to offer some gentle correction and encouragement in an important area. Like I said, we don't know what the situation was like in Corinth, but it appears, it appears that there had been some type of gender confusion in the church. So when the church met for worship, there was confusion around gender roles, about the attire that maybe the men and women were wearing during worship, specifically head coverings. And these head coverings, as we'll find, reflected the distinct gender roles of that culture. And then uh, what we're going to see is that these new believers really are learning what it means to live as men and women of God. They're still new Christians, and they're asking the question, what does it mean to be a man of God, to be a man of God in my family, to be a man of God at church, and the women likewise? What does it mean to be a new woman in Christ? And so in verse 3... Paul writes this but I sorry but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ the head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God so he commends them but there's a but and the issue is related to this whole idea of Christian headship and so Paul sees that the Corinthians are putting forth a sincere effort. But even in the midst of this effort, there's a legitimate issue that needs to be addressed. The Corinthians need to understand something. I I don't know if you find that interesting, but right at the beginning of verse 3, but I want you to understand something. The Corinthians need to understand more about God to live properly. And I want us to see this right off the bat. Paul is writing to Corinth. There is an issue that needs to be dealt with, a legitimate issue. He's going to deal with it. Where does he start? In God's economy, theology must always drive the bus. Theology must always precede life, living, and practice. And so good theology will result in good living. And I think that a lot of people get this verse wrong because they put the cart before the horse, they put practice, they put my philosophy, my life before theology. And so when they approach texts like this, they think to themselves, it can't possibly mean what it says because I don't think that way. My church doesn't do it that way. I don't practice it that way. But what Paul wants them to see is this, that the first remedy to their issue is a theological issue. Theology is truth about God and it's truth from God and it must always inform our living and our thinking and never the other way around. So Paul here helps them to put the horse before the cart, and he deals first with a theology of headship. Now, I was supposed to have a good handout to provide, but I didn't provide it uh, because of my own error. So I'll give you this whole line. It's a long line, but here, point number one is this. Paul provides a theology of headship, and that is God's earthly structure, for authority and responsibility. And so Paul begins this whole, or this brief theological overview by pointing out that the head of every man is Christ. It's interesting when we think, for those of us that know anything about male headship, Christian headship in the church and home, we often think about men, men's relationship with women. But Paul doesn't start with men. He doesn't start with women. Paul starts with Christ Christ. And he uses the word head. It's the Greek word kephale. And he's speaking about both origin and authority. And so he's saying that from Christ comes our origin. From Christ comes our authority. Even before he gets to relationships between men and women, he starts with man's relationship with God the Son. And if we're going to get our theology of headship right, if we're not going to skew one way or the other, we need to have a Christocentric theology. Christ must be at the center. Christ must be at the head. Christ must have supremacy. Now, man, if you have an understanding of male headship, that is excellent. But you need to understand this as well that you're not at the top of the food chain. Christ is at the top. I think about what Christ said when. Uh, he issued the Great Commission, Matthew 18. We remember that, right? Go therefore and preach the gospel to all nations to make make disciples, excuse me, of all nations. But he said this before in Matthew 28, 18. He says, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Then he says, go therefore, live in light of this authority, preach the gospel in light of this authority the first thing that we need to understand in headship to have a good theology of headship is Christ is at the top. And you'll see at the beginning of verse 3, Christ is at the top, and at the end of verse 3, we have the Godhead, Christ, and God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit at the top. And so headship, from beginning to end, really and truly, is all about Christ. It's all about God. When we do, think about this, men, when we do headship well, who does it glorify? What does it point to? It's about Christ. In Colossians 1 16 and 18, 16 to 18, we read this, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Kids, you know who's who Paul is talking about here? For by him all things were created. Visible, God, and specifically God the God the Savior, God the Son. This is about Jesus. So we could say, for by Jesus, through Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him, through him, and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, then in everything he might be preeminent. And so in headship, in the church, what Paul starts with is this. Authority starts with Christ. Authority exists for Christ. It's from him and through him and to him. And as we've pointed out, from beginning to end, it's all about Jesus. Now, why am I making a big point of this? Because this has tremendous implications for everything else as we think about headship, as we think about the rest of God's framework for leadership, for authority, for responsibility in the Christian life, it's completely intertwined. And so not only does that mean that we are under authority, we're going to talk about how men have been given God ordained authority in the home and in the church and in the Christian life. Not only does it mean that we are under authority, but it means that authority is a delegated authority. And I'll give you an example of what this is. So my employer i work for a a body i won't say exactly what but you know but i work for a a large body that has authority and my my employer has given me a letter of delegation and what that means is this that they have given some of their authority to me to carry out a task and when you receive delegated authority what that means is that the giver of that authority in this case Christ, Christ, the triune God, the giver of that authority determines who gets the authority, the scope of that authority, and how that authority is exercised. And so in my job, I have a very specific scope. If I start scoping out drug houses in North Edmonton and trying to make arrests, That authority is not going to stand because that is outside. Steve knows what I do, so he's laughing. That is outside of my scope of authority. And so God, as the delegator of authority, gets to determine who uses and exercises that authority. And that means that it's God and not man and not woman and not children who get to determine a place of authority. So Paul begins this whole theology lesson by pointing us to Christ, and he shows us that Christ is the pinnacle of authority. I know I'm really hammering hard on this, but he also shows, and we're going to look at it later, that Christ is the model for how that authority is exercised. Okay, and this is not some new position that Paul has concocted in his own mind. It's not a, a new theological uh, item that he is now hammering home to the Corinthians, but this is a A point when, oftentimes, when Paul makes this point from Scripture, he goes back to the created order. He goes back to Eden. He goes back to Adam and Eve. He goes back to the beginning. And so we'll look back there. He doesn't do it now, but we'll look back there together to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 15. We see this, that even before Eve had been formed, God had given Adam, he had given the man his mandate to work and to keep the garden. He was to have dominion and a place of privilege and responsibility to carefully steward God's creation. Man, you'll, you'll know that from our men's group. We've, we've looked at that now for a few months. But this idea that, that God had given man a role, a responsibility to provide, to protect, to keep, to maintain. In Genesis 2.15, we read this, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And then a few verses later, we see something or or someone specifically was missing from that garden. And we read about the origins of women in Genesis 2:18, 3 verses over, then the Lord God said, "It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him." So man had been given a place of privilege and responsibility and dominion, but he needed help. And so what did God do? He needed a companion. So God gave him a dear helper. And that's what it says. I will make him a helper fit for him. And they were to be joined together as one flesh, husband and wife, a man with a, steward, a stewardship responsibility, a leadership responsibility, and a wife who was to come alongside him and help him in that. But the task specifically had been given to Adam. Now, for some of us, We may feel like recoiling at that idea that God would put men in a position of leadership over their wives, or that God would put men in a position of leadership in the church, that man would have a specific responsibility. There are many churches, as as I've already mentioned today, when they get their practice and their philosophy before their theology, they go in this route. And we shouldn't be surprised by that, because God actually tells Adam and Eve and Eve specifically in Genesis 3:16 that this would happen he says in Genesis 3:16 your desire shall be contrary to your husband but he shall rule over you and so this loving and peaceful relationship a man leading his wife wife loving and even submitting to her husband would be blemished by sin and the curse of the fall and God says that the woman would essentially resist her husband's leadership. There would be attempts, maybe frequent attempts, to usurp the male's role. And the man would either rule harshly, as it says, and he will rule over you, or he would just fade away into passivity. And we see that too. A harsh rulership or a fading into passivity. So nevertheless, we see this pattern lay out continuously in the Bible. And Steve made mention of uh, course that we 've been taking in the grace Institute classes and uh, and they spoke about that in one of the classes. but we see as an example that when God used a single man to preserve mankind, that man Noah' I've given it away was a man when God chose uh, patriarchs individuals that were to form the beginnings of the nation of israel their names were abraham isaac and jacob they were men the 12 tribes of israel were named after the 12 sons or grandsons of jacob moses who delivered the israelites from egypt was a man the judges of israel were men now someone might say hey but wasn't deborah a judge Yes, Deborah was a judge, and and as as we're learning in Grace Institute, uh, one of the things that we learn when we see Deborah as a judge in the nation of Israel is that it was actually a condemnation of the nation, that there were no qualified and able men that could lead the people of Israel. And so Deborah stepped up to the shame of the nation and to, to the shame even of Barak. We see that the kings were all men except for one, one queen, if you remember. Uh, there was one queen, a murderous queen, who killed all the descendants that were to be king and eventually herself was killed. The most notable prophets in the Bible were men. John the Baptist was a man. Jesus was a man. The seven uh, servants in Acts 6 that we read about that were identified to serve tables were men. The Apostle Paul, a man. Did I mention the 12 disciples? Were men. Even God is used describing masculine pronouns. So you might not like it. You might disagree. But God, God created man and he created woman equal in the sight of God, equal in value, equal in their ability to approach God and yet different. It's okay that God would create men and women equal and yet different. And that's what God Has done and probably one of the best ways to describe that Uh, we've actually put in our statement of faith and I'm not going to read the whole thing but I've put it actually on the back of our bulletins for today and it reads something like this men and women are together created in the divine image this is our statement of faith we wholly affirm this and are therefore equal before God as persons possessing the same moral dignity and value and have equal access to God through faith in Jesus Christ. Men and women are together the recipients of spiritual gifts designed to equip and empower for ministry in the local church and beyond. We believe that God has created men and women to fulfill different and complementary roles in the life of the local church. I'm reading it all. I said I wasn't. God has ordained the principle of male headship in both home and local church, and that certain governing and teaching rules are reserved for man. This is a summation of the doctrine of headship. And this is what Paul is getting at in one verse, that Christ is the head of man, that man is the head of woman, and that the head of Christ is God, this sandwich of headship. So now that we have this idea of headship, we have this this view, we'll look on at how this is practiced beginning in verse four. So first Corinthians eleven and verse four Paul writes this. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. What does that mean? We're going to find out. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut her hair, cut off her hair or shave her head let her cover her head for a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God but woman is the glory of man what do we do with all of that how do we make sense of all of that that's a tall order but this is what we'll see we'll see the application of the principle of headship in this the, the timeless principle first of headship in the church So if you're taking notes, this is the second point. Headship in the church. We have the theology of headship, now headship in the church. And what Paul shows us is that God has ordained male leadership, male authority, male responsibility in the church, not only as a creational norm, which it is, we see that in Genesis, but as a rule for leadership in the local church. And in Corinth, this reality is demonstrated by a particular cultural custom that was practiced at that time and place. So there was a particular practice, a particular custom that the, that the church could and should use in that time. And it was common in this particular culture for a woman to wear a shawl or a veil. I'm not sure if anyone's seen that if you've been to a church where they have a head covering, but essentially a cloth or fabric covering over their head once they were given in marriage. And so it's kind of like if you go to uh, the Hutterite community and you see a man with a big beard next to a man with no beard, you can say, that guy's married and that guy isn't. And that's exactly what was happening in Corinth. Whenever a woman would be married, when a woman would be married, she would put a head covering on to signify this. And it had particular, particular excuse me, cultural significance because it communicated not only that a woman was married, but that that woman was in willing submission to her husband. That was important to communicate in this culture. And this might seem odd to us at first, but like I said, we think about the Hutterites. They do something very similar. They grow their beards. For those of you who are married, you probably have a ring on the fourth finger of your left hand, something like that. We have similar customs today. And in Corinth and in the Greco-Roman world, this was one of their customs. Women would be married, and they would have a head covering on, and they were conveying that they were in a committed relationship before God and government. And this custom of wearing a head covering essentially said, I am my husband's wife, and I am committed to following his lead And so when someone would refuse, when a woman would refuse, a married woman, I should say, would refuse to wear a head covering, it would communicate to those around them that this this woman is insubordinate. I am rebelling against my husband. I am no longer putting myself in subordination under my husband. I'm no longer respecting his leadership. This was a source of great shame, not only for the man, but also for the woman. And Paul, you see Paul says that in this text. And so as an example... If you were a married woman and you lived in the Greco-Roman world, if you lived in Corinth in this day, you were married and you decided one day, I'm going to go out and get groceries or I'm going to go to church today and I don't really want to bother myself with that head covering. I'm just going to leave it on my dresser. I'm not sure if they had dressers back then, but I'm going to leave it there and you walk out into the street and your neighbors know that you're married and the people at the market know that you're married, you would be communicating one of three things. You'd be communicating that, one, I am now a radical feminist. Can you imagine a first century radical feminist? I have rejected my husband's leadership and therefore I have rejected the symbol of authority and the symbol of marriage to him. If you were to do that and cut your hair short, you'd be saying, I am most likely a temple priestess. This is part of my identity. I worship pagan gods. I'm a priestess at the temple. I do not wear a head covering. I have short hair to show you that that's what I do. And if you were to shave your head, remove your head covering and shave your head, you'd be communicating that I am a prostitute. This is, this is my livelihood. I am easily identifiable. And so if you're a woman in that culture, to remove your head covering, to cut your hair short, which Paul addresses, or to shave your head, conveys very, very strong messages to the people around you. And so as we look at this, as discussing, in discussing this principle, it's not surprising that Paul brings up such a prominent cultural custom. And while we don't know exactly what was happening in Corinth, Paul wants to convey this, that these men and women, have, even though they've been made new creatures in Christ, this does not disrupt or alter God's creation mandate for male headship, nor does it give them any reason to jettison the cultural practices that symbolize this dynamic of leadership and submission in the home. And so, what Paul's saying even though you're a new, new creature, even though you're a Christian now, the creational norm still stands the man is to lead the woman is to help. Together they will become one flesh. And if in your culture that means wearing a head covering to communicate that for the sake of your husband, for the sake of the gospel, then wear a head covering. That's what Paul is getting at. And so when women go to church, they should participate. Paul says they should pray and prophesy, but with their heads covered to show that they are under the authority of their husbands and to show in a broader sense that they are under the authority of the male eldership, the male leaders of the church. And this, what we see here, if you guys can understand this, is we see it play a timeless principle, a principle that we found in Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 and all through the Old Testament and now all through the New Testament, we see a timeless principle and a cultural custom, applying that timeless principle and so as an example imagine that we were to get on a plane who wants to go to africa with me kids who would get on that plane okay Noah's on the plane with me we're okay and pj as well he's been reading through the gates of splendor and he's thoroughly challenged by it and so we hop on a plane we go to Africa we find a new culture and in that culture one of the ways that the women show their submission to their husbands when they're married they're given a bracelet we share the gospel with them praise God they believe we're discipling them we show them how to live the Christian life we get to 1st Corinthians chapter 11 how do we apply it well it doesn't say wear a bracelet it says wear a head covering throw away the bracelet wear the head covering now there's confusion in the village. Why did she throw away her bracelet? She's married to that man. She committed to him. No, what we would say is this. If you want to, if you want to obey the spirit of 1 Corinthians 11, sister, wear that bracelet. Wear that bracelet to church. Wear that bracelet in the community. If it's, if it's a skirt, if, if you go to a village and it's a head covering, 1 Corinthians 11, obey it exactly as it reads. Sister, wear your head covering in the church. And in our culture, what does that look like? I mean, I think for most of us, what that looks like is that is is that is the women loving and in a public way respecting their husbands. Maybe it's a big deal that your wife wears her wedding ring. Maybe you have a tattooed wedding ring. Maybe you don't have a wedding ring. But whatever that looks like in your context, that is what the woman is to do to show that she is under authority and so we can see here the timeless principle and the cultural practice the cultural custom that is at play and sister what I would say is if you're really convicted as there are people that are convicted about wearing a head covering whatever is not a faith is sin and so wear that head covering if if that is your conviction and so got to find my place here and the next thing that Paul deals with, he dealt with it in verse four and then in seven is men. PJ, what are we gonna do about your toque? You're in worship wearing an item of clothing on your head. Well, in the Greco-Roman world, hope you don't mind me doing this brother, it's a small group, but in the Greco-Roman world, it was a common practice for, uh, for men to take their toga. They would go into a, a pagan sacrifice, pagan worship, and they would take their toga, and if they were in the role of a priest, they would take that toga and pull it over their heads. And what they did in pulling that over their heads, it was part of, I think, the reverence of their pagan sacrifice, their pagan worship, but they were also conveying, because only the priests could be, sorry, only the elite in the social class could be priests. They were conveying that, I am part of the upper echelon of society. And so by pulling their togas over their heads by putting a covering on their heads they were distracting people from the actual act of pagan worship and attracting attention in a sense to themselves and so if men were to go to church and as they're meeting imagine this a newly converted pagan man goes to church he's only ever worshiped at the pagan temples and during the worship he is a man of high society he pulls his toga over his head if we entered if we just transported ourselves into that culture we would have no idea what he's doing but his contemporaries his peers would go oh he's he's posturing this man is he's the elite he's one of the pagan priests and so what paul is doing when he says don't dishonor your head by covering your head is this he's saying don't dishonor christ by replicating these pagan practices in the worship of the church that's how you acted in the world leave that in the world don't dishonor Christ by drawing attention to yourself in worship. Christ, who is the head, is to get the glory. Christ, who is the head, is to get worship. He says, to the contrary, you are the image and the glory of God. And so what he's is saying is, you're creating the image and likeness of God, the glory of God, reflect that glory for the glory of God. Glorify Him. Reflect his majesty, don't attract attention to your physical head by pulling a covering over your head, but attract attention to your spiritual head, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, brother, you can wear your toque if you so desire, but, but this whole view at the end of the day, as we've already said, it begins and ends with Christ. And so if covering your head dishonors Christ, then uncover your head Our attitude must be to magnify and exalt him. He must increase, as John the Baptist said, and we must decrease. And so this is God's desire in the local church. To summarize, that men should lead and bear the burden of responsibility for the welfare of the church, for the health of the church, for the leadership of the church. And so when we go to a biblical church, we should expect women to have their heads covered or uncovered men to have their heads covered or uncovered but men to be in a position of leadership that's what paul is getting at that is what the principle that he's getting at here is that men are to lead the church and male leadership in the church should be synonymous with loving and sacrificial service so not lording over and domineering but the, but mature and godly men as under shepherds of christ guiding, feeding, protecting, caring for, laying down their lives for the sheep. And if if we're part of a church that implements this, where, where the wives humbly and submissively respect their husbands, and the husbands and the men, and I should, I should include single young ladies, but, but when the men, we should see in them a sacrificial, a loving service, a desire to, to serve the people around them. We're going to get into... Christ's example in a bit, but I'll just bring up two examples. I've had the opportunity to be the member of two local churches prior to this church in my life. One of them was one that rejected male headship, that rejected male leadership and authority. The other one was was one, a church that joyfully embraced male headship, that embraced the men leading the church as part of God's design. And In the church that rejected this principle, there were always Always, 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 always two extremes at play. One extreme was this. In the spiritual life of the church, the women were active. They were engaged. They were in the choir. They were singing. It was a vibrant spirituality. And the men were almost completely absent, completely passive. You had active women and then defunct men somewhere in the background. But when it came to the business matters of the church, when it came to how we're going to revamp the cemetery or the building or who's gonna hire and fire the pastor, then it was the men domineering and ruling harshly while the women had no voice. And so you had these two extremes. You had spiritual, if I could be so kind, spiritual midgets who ruled with an iron fist. And that's what that church looked like. In the other church where they embraced this idea, there was a humble, servant-hearted kind of leadership. Uh, The kind of atmosphere where people outdo one another in showing honor. It wasn't perfect, but the men were engaged they loved the Lord, they knew their God, they took the leadership role. When it came time to pray, there was no man that was standing in the background hoping that they call on someone else. They were volunteering, they were willing, and they were able. And the women, there was a sense of security and contentment. They didn't have to jostle for position or for prominence. They were freed to be served and to serve God, and to love God, and to love their families. There was a sense of security in that dynamic. And when a church grasps that, then we can read passages like 1 Corinthians 14, where Paul's going to go next, when he says the women should keep silent in the churches. What does that mean, Paul? They're not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law also says, we can understand that, that there's room for women to pray and to prophesy, to have an active role in the church, but it 's not a role of leadership. it 's not the role that the world would have for them. We can read First Timothy two: twelve and thirteen. "I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over man. Rather, she is to remain quiet when our theology drives our practice. We can read this and accept it. For Adam is formed first then Eve." And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. We can read passages like 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 and 2, saying he's trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, elder, pastor, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. You can read texts like that and go, this is the way that God has made me. This is the way that God has made man. This is the way that God has made woman. It is good God's design is good, and I should receive it. I should accept it. And so that's where Paul's going, headship in the church. The next thing we see is headship in the home. And so here we see the authority, the leadership, the responsibility paradigm of the home. And we can see this beginning in verse 8. Paul writes there, For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife, see the marriage relationship, a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Now, what does that mean? The angels are watching the church. They've, they've longed to see this salvation. They've longed to see the application of God's redemption. And when a woman is in submission to her husband in the context of worship, in the context of marriage, in the context of the family, even the angels are looking. Even the angels are looking at your marriage and your marriage is conveying one thing or another, not only to the world, but to angels. And so men have been tasked by God to lead your families. Now, as we've talked about for single men, single women, young men, young women, old men, sorry brother, old men, what are we to do in this type of thing? Well, if you're single, brothers, prepare to be married. Prepare yourself to be the man that, that is worthy of his wife's submission. And if you're married and you're wondering why isn't my wife respecting me? Why isn't my wife submitting? I remember having a conversation with my wife. Honey, you're actually supposed to submit to me. I didn't go that well. But what I realized is that when I prayed and when I sought God and I said, Lord, help me to be a man worthy of submitting to. Help me to be a man of God that leads my family, that provides, that protects. Everything just fell into place. And so as counsel to men first, before we even talk about women submitting to you, men be men and be men of God. And as you exercise authority in your marriage, think about what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, just one verse ahead. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. How did Christ exercise his authority he came not to not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom of, for many and so how does a man Noah young man how does a man lead his family lovingly sacrificially the man who loves his family best is the man who lays down his life for his family the most and if we go to Ephesians let's go to Ephesians 5 together We're almost done, guys. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 22. Stay with me just a little longer. We see the instructions for both wives and husbands in Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. I think I've shared this story, but I remember talking to a young Catholic coworker that was about to get married and we were talking about how to have a healthy dynamic in your marriage. And I pulled out Ephesians 5 and I read that first line and this woman who claims to love God and believe the Bible, she said, I hate that verse. This is the word of God. Wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord for the husband is the head of the wife. See that, the authority, the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. See, we see Christ again appear and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, church, we need to submit to Christ. And as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And so what this means, wives, is it means loving your husband, trusting your husband. God would not have to write this if it came naturally. This is instruction that's written down for you to follow even when you don't feel like it. In verse 25, husbands, love your wives. Listen to this. Brothers, I'm going to ask. We'll make this interactive. How big is the section for wives? Someone measure that with your fingers. How big is it? Okay, it's it's that big. Okay, how big is the section for men? The (laughs) The rest of the chapter. Yeah, the rest of the chapter. Wives, submit, respect, and then husbands, love your wives. And this is the standard, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. As Christ loved the church and gave himself, sacrifice died for her, for this purpose that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. I'm, I'm not going to read it all, but I'd like you to read it, man. If If you haven't recently go back and read ephesians 5 but he says in verse 32 this mystery is profound and i'm saying that it refers to christ and the church it refers to christ and the church when a husband loves his wife well and the wife submits to her husband who does it glorify it glorifies the head of the whole headship dynamic it glorifies christ it's a demonstration of the gospel and notice brothers that it's not just physical leadership it's not just physical leadership but it's spiritual leadership that means that if you're going to be a good provider a good protector in your home you're not just leading physically you're not just choosing where you're going to go out for dinner tonight at the restaurant or how much money we're going to put into our rsps you're leading the family around the table you're leading your wife in the word in prayer, in in spiritual matters. It's a spiritual leadership. And I'm so challenged by one story that I heard. Some of you might have heard the story, I'm not sure. But John G. Payton was a missionary to uh, the unreached tribes in the New Hebrides in the 1800s. And he is not known very well, but God used him to save thousands and thousands of people, kind of like The Alcas in, in Ecuador, God used John G. Payton to save thousands of people in the New Hebrides in the South Pacific. And one of my favorite stories, one of the most challenging stories, isn't even about his life, but it's about his father's life and the household that he was raised in. When I hear stories about his father, oh, it just makes the hair stand up on my arms, thinking about how much of a challenge and even a rebuke it is to me in my own life. But when John Payton was a child, his father would gather together the whole family for worship and his father would lead family in prayer and in devotions. And Peyton wrote this about his father's prayers. He said this, imagine your kids. How would your children, dads, how would your children, future dads, how would your children write about your prayer life if they were to say, this is how my dad prayed? John Payton writes this, how much my father's prayers at this time impressed me, I can never explain. Nor could any stranger understand when, on his knees, this is a quote, and all of us kneeling around him in family worship, he poured out his whole soul with tears for the conversion of the heathen world to the service of Jesus, and for every personal and domestic need. We all felt as if in the presence of the living Savior, and learned to know and love him as our divine friend. Oh my goodness, to have a dad like that, to be a dad like that. Brothers, let us be so, and he says this, (sighs) Nothing prevented at least our kneeling around the family altar while the high priest led our prayers to God and offered himself and his children there. And little did he know, but there was a woman, an immoral woman that used to come in the evenings and sneak up under the window of the house just to listen to their family worship and to listen to him pray And years later, she came to faith in Christ. And this is what she said. She said she was on the verge of suicide at times when she would go beneath this window. And when she came to Christ, she said, I felt that I was a burden on that good man's heart. And I knew that God would not disappoint him. Oh, do we pray like that, men? Do we pray like that? And ladies, not to leave you out, Are you a Proverbs 31 woman? A Proverbs 31 wife? Are you familiar with... Is anyone here familiar with Proverbs 31? As it pertains to perfect. Maybe I won't read the whole thing then. I'll just read bits and pieces. Proverbs 31, 10 to 31. An excellent wife who can find... Oh, sisters, be that excellent wife. Be that excellent wife for the glory of God and the glory of Christ. She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts her you see you see the complementarity in this relationship yes he's in leadership yes he's responsible for the family but he trusts her and he will have no lack of gain she does him good and not harm all the days of her life and it speaks about how she seeks wool and flax and she works for the family I love this, and makes her arms strong. Ladies, it's okay if you have strong arms. And listen to the respect that her husband receives. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. Women, your conduct has an impact even on the reputation of your husband. An insubordinate and rebellious wife. I tell my children, there's there's few things in the world as ugly as a disobedient child. And maybe in the, same, in the same vein, there are few things as ugly as a rebellious wife or as a harsh husband. harsh husband. And then I'll just say, I'll read this. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. And women, you have a very important responsibility in the lives of your children, in the lives of your future child, I think about Monica, the mother of Augustine, if anyone knows that story. Augustine, who's one of the early church fathers, he grew up, as we know, to be a, a, a massively impactful writer. And, and he helped to really formulate and condense some of the doctrines that we still hold very dear today in the church. But early on, as a young man, he was massively rebellious. And he was, he was so bad that at one point, almost all hope had been lost for Augustine. And this is what what one biographer wrote about Monica, Augustine's mom, or St. Augustine, if you prefer it that way. She made it her mission on earth to be one who would just constantly pray for Augustine, to be the one, again, from a human perspective, that God would use in bringing Augustine to himself. That's to God. In fact, at one point in the Confessions, that's the autobiography of Augustine Monica says there was only one reason and one reason alone why I wished to remain a little longer in this life and it was to see you Augustine to see you become a Christian and so she prayed unlike anybody else she prayed for her son and by God's grace God answered those prayers he heard those prayers he saved Augustine We'll turn last here. I'll make this last point short. The beauty of gender gender complementarity. So we've got the theology of headship. Headship in the church. Headship in the home. And then you could say the beauty of headship. The beauty of gender complementarity. And I'll go back to 1 Corinthians 11 there to find my spot But in verse 11, we're just going to hone in on verse 11. We've talked about a lot of these verses already. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not dependent on man, nor man of woman. Oh, verse 12 as well. For as woman was made from man, so man is born of woman, and all things are from God. Christ is at the head he is at the beginning. Christ is at the end. He will receive the glory. He must receive the glory. And here we see the beauty of headship. That God has designed everything to be just so. That the man being the man complements the woman being the woman. Man came from woman. Woman came from man. And together, together, there is harmony. And we see here, maybe I'll just point out one more verse out of interest. He says this, does not nature, in verse 14, does not nature itself teach that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him. But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her as a covering. God has made women beautiful. And God has made it so that when a woman is pregnant, I think of my 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 wife, when she was pregnant, how her hair and her nails grew with the extra estrogen. And it is part of its estrogen. And with the testosterone, you think about a man, when he takes too much testosterone, he loses his hair. God has made man to be a man. He's made a woman to be a woman. He's given a woman long hair for her glory, for her beauty. He has made them together. And what of it, all of it is from God and all of it is through God. All of it is to God. And so if you got the message that I'm saying one sex is better than another today, you got the message wrong. It's that God has made man and women equal and yet different, and all for his glory. And when we get it right, it glorifies Christ. It points to the gospel, and it makes much of him. Let's pray.